Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. In this episode, I'm talking to Stephen Moriarty, a private investor with decades of experience. I'm talking to Stephen about his investment process and how his top-down tools and strategies drive his portfolio allocation. Then we dive into the topic of modern monetary theory or MMT. You might have heard of MMT as the kind of modern view of economics or modern approach to economics. I think this is a really important conversation to have now given what we've seen not only from the Australian government, but international governments. I'm particularly interested in how this new approach to economics and fiscal policy can influence an investor's portfolio and should influence our view of industries or markets, employment, and many different aspects of broader economy and the impact it has on businesses. I'd love to know what you think about this conversation, both from an investment process and philosophy perspective, but also from MMT more broadly. Do you agree? Do you disagree with Stephen's point of view? I think this is a fascinating conversation and one that we'll probably broach a few more times going forward. As always, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. Stephen, thanks for taking some time out today, mate, and joining me on the show. No problem. Thanks for the invite. Um, for people who don't know of you, I think they're going to learn a lot more about your investment philosophy, the way you think about not only investing, um, but finance and the economy more broadly throughout this conversation. But, uh, we've had Pete Wardgen on the show in, in the past. It's probably safe to say that he's a friend of the show and yeah. he's came on, he's come on to, to talk about property and his, his journey. Um, and yep. you're in business with Pete. Yep. Um, I'm led to believe because we just spoke off air that you're often known as the stocks guy amongst the two and he's the property guy, but um, I'm sure that we'll get to kind of this more holistic view of how you think about things. Um, yes. We, I, I reached out to Pete to say, Hey, mate, it'd be great if you could come on and, and speak to us about this idea of modern economics and, and how investors and um, I guess analysts can think about that. But then I've since gone on and listened to your podcast um, low rates, high returns, and, right. and read a bit more about you and discovered that there's so much more we could talk about. So um, we could go in many different directions and it might not, we might not have long enough to cover it all in one go, but I feel like a really good way to set the scene for our listeners and viewers is just for you to tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to be in the position you're in. Right. Um, well, at first, <clears throat> I've always been interested in gambling. Um, and it, right. it, it actually started when I was 15. Um, I'm 57 now. So we're talking about a different era, you know, in, the, in that sense. So let me put it in context there. When I, start, I started work at 15, um, and so I, I loved horses because I thought they were quite beautiful. And then the jockeys had really colourful outfits. And so I then sort of just got interested in, in horse racing. 
So I started doing a little bit in horse racing um, and like most people lost a lot of money. Um, and then I got interested in stocks when I was about 19. Um, and in those days, the, there wasn't an Australian stock exchange. There was the, the Sydney Stock Exchange and a seconds board, which was for little tiny companies. So I bought a company called Pivot Group. Um, and I think it was seven cents. And I bought it like everybody else buys their first stocks, which was from a guy who went, mate, this stock's going to go gangbusters. Um, and needless to say, I think I lost my money. Um, but from there, basically, I got really interested um, just prior to the 2000 dot-com crash. Um, and again, because stocks were rising at such a rapid rate, um, it looked a little bit like it does today, where it's a bit like, oh, well, it's an easy way to make money. You know, let's go and do that. Um, so that's really what got me started. But I spent a lot of time, or probably the next 10 years, uh, reading a lot about stocks, but also investing in property. Um, and so I made money out of property, but I can, you know, as you said at the start, I'm really the stocks guy. Um, property doesn't do a lot for me. I'm not really, you know, it just sits there. You can't talk about it every day of the week or, you know, I just find stocks more exciting. Um, and so I, I went on to do <clears throat> a lot of reading. Um, and then I started making, I, I started making sort of good money mm. in about 2003. Um, and that was when the stocks had finished declining after 2000 and we had a sort of cyclical bull market. Um, and during that period, um, I got more and more educated, I suppose, and I started to see the opportunity of making money from investing, which would give me the freedom, which is what I actually wanted. I, you know, I enjoyed working, but if someone said to me, what's your dream job? It'd be like sitting around talking and investing in stocks um, because my personality type is a person who says, I like freedom. I don't like constraints. And working for someone else, whilst pleasant, is a constraint. And so I, I, I basically started to, um, I got married as well. Um, we built more wealth. Um, and the, the further on I went, the more I realised that I could actually do this as a full-time job and look after my children. Mm. So you were looking forward to being effectively a private investor, which you are today. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, it, it's, as I said, it's always interested me. As I've gotten older, um, I've got more time to, you know, sit around and read books and think about it. And it's, a, it's, a, it's really a cycle. You know, you, you never get to a point where you go, I know everything now. You know, there's always something new happening and changing. Um, that you need to put a, a sort of integrate into your philosophy, to your broad philosophy about not how you invest, but generally about how you structure your life. Mm. Uh, and it's a really, really important part of it. Mm. So what then took you from, because I know that you've been a private investor for quite a while now, what took you back to, you know, you've got a podcast now with Pete, yeah. written a book, um, you've got courses, you do coaching, all these different types of things. What brought you back to that? Was it just a chance meeting with Pete or was it, was it um, something else? Well, yeah, there was a couple of things. <coughs> Excuse me. As I was saying before, 
when I, I lived in Tokyo for about nine years, and when I was over there, my wife was the one um, who was working, and I was looking after the kids because they were young newborn child. And I started to get more and more interested in stocks because I had more time each day. So I then started to sort of talk to people about stocks and noticed that I was also, you know, at that stage I was doing a master's and basically saying to people, look, <coughs> investing in stocks is not really that hard. You know, you can, you can do it yourself. But a lot of people were sort of like, yeah, that's interesting, but mm, not really. So I've always sort of had a yearning to teach people how to invest their own money. And the reason why is because it's actually pretty simple. Mm. You know, it's not, it, it, we tend to think money is, money is important in our lives. You know, it's probably the number one thing that most of us think about in our life. But that doesn't mean that it's complex or that it's beyond the reach of anybody to manage their own money. Um, and particularly investing is, is actually like that as well. It's a little bit like once you cut away the, the sort of jargon, if I can put it to you, the, you know, the financial language that the professionals use, it's actually not that difficult. And as I sort of say to people, if you have a think about it, the stock market can do two things. It can go up or it can go down. So it's very different than saying putting a chicken in the middle of a paddock and saying, guess where the chicken ends up, right? Because it can go, it can run anywhere. Um, so with that, I started to develop the program and I met Pete very early on. And we basically, you know, we would sit down, have coffee and talk about property and stocks. And so we joined forces um, because we both saw that we had common elements that we could sort of, you know, Pete was a property expert and I learned a lot about property from Pete. And, you know, then we'd talk about stocks and I'd sort of say, well, you know, you might want to think about this for stocks. And so it was a sort of, a, you know, if I can put it like an intellectual marriage where we went, oh, this is really good, um, you know, and it sort of took off from there. Mm. But there's, there's a big back half to this conversation, um, which I really want to get to for myself and for our listeners. But there are some timeless principles that you've, you've introduced um, to your listeners, to your readers, to your clients, which yes. I'm hoping you can share maybe a couple of them with maybe a couple of your favorite um, sure. with our listeners and viewers, just to get a sense of kind of the, the types of things you think about when you're talking about money and the relationship between that and investing. Yeah, sure. Look, it's, it, I developed the eight principles because of, because of this one thing. When you think about investing, you're going to probably invest for, you know, 30, 40, even 50 years these days, okay? Mm -hmm. And what you see a lot is people cherry pick dates and tell you, for example, gold is a great investment. Oh, okay. And then it's not a great investment. Or mm -hmm. people say, look, it's a great time to buy a property. Right, why? Well, if you'd have bought one in 1983, you'd have made lots of money. Oh, okay. What about from 1936 to 1983? Oh, no, that would have been an awful time. It's like, oh, okay. So what the reason why the, the, the principles were developed was to say to people, and I use this analogy, and I, I, let me give you the caveat, I'm not religious, but what I'm saying is, look, 
it's a little bit like saying, look, Owen, here's the Ten Commandments. Now, they're not going to work every time, okay? But look, generally, if you stick by them, you'll probably do all right. It's the principles in life that are timeless, and that's why we call them timeless, because what you can do is use them in any type of market. Now, leading to my question, there's eight principles. The, if, if someone said to me, what are, the, what are the most important three? I would say, firstly, market cycles. You have to know where you are in the market cycle because if you buy stocks in the year 2000, when the market cycle was at its peak, you didn't make any money for the next 20 years. Now, I'm talking in the US stock market. Mm. Unless you put more money in. And so that's a, that's a whole other issue. But generally what we know is stock markets rise and they fall and it's fairly predictable. Now, some people might go, oh, that's a bit controversial, but it's not really. Um, the second principle that's probably the most important is asset allocation. Mm. Most people make a mistake of investing too much at the wrong time. And so at the bottom of the stock market, when it crashes and they're yielding, say, 10%, according to the, the, the indicator that we use, most people are frightened because the, the market's fallen. So rather than saying, what a great offer, 10%, I'm going to put lots of money in the stock market, they don't put much in at all. Then when the market's at the top and it's only offering half a percent or even a potentially big capital loss, everybody thinks it's a great time to get in. Because, you know, look at it, it's gone up 200%. What a great time to get in. And so it pays to be more contrarian by understanding the market cycle. Asset allocation then naturally falls out of that. So if you said to me, um, you know, currently with the US stock market, very expensive, it would be pretty stupid if you said, Steve, I've got 100,000. I tell you what, I'm going to put it all on the US market. Right, because you, what I would say to you is, Owen, the return is probably going to be negative over the next 10 years. Do you really think you want to risk a maybe 5 or 10% upside for a potential 50 to 60% downside? And that's what history shows us. The third one um, is rebalancing. And it's probably, the, it's probably the most important principle of all. Um, and it's simply saying, and it's a little difficult for people to understand because people get a buy and hold mentality and that's what they're taught. That's what I was taught when I did my master's. Right? And it's incorrect. Hmm. What you have to do to compound your money is you have to continue to buy and sell and get as the big earnings yield. And I can say to you, if you invested in, let's, let me give you an example. If you started investing in 1982 in the United States, when our, our CAPE ratio indicator was at about seven, which means it's very cheap, you get the bull market to the year 2000. Now, in 2000, the CAPE ratio was at 44, which, and the long-term average is 17. That tells you it's going to fall a long way, which is exactly what it did. Right? So from 1982 to 2000, the average annual compound return was roughly about 16%. Now, from 2000 to 2009, you lost about 60%, okay? But you lost 60% of the 600% that you made in 82 to 2000. So in other words, 
that what you do is you look at 1982 to 2009 and you say, oh, there you go, the average return, 8%. But what I say is, yes, but if you'd have taken a lot of money off the table in 2000 and maybe, you know, bought bonds or you'd bought a property, whatever, where the, you know, where the yields were good, you'd have made more money than you would have when you got from 1982 to 2009. Mm. So the reason is to rebalance is to take some profit. And then when the market falls, you can feed some back in mm. and compound it again and again. There's, there's a few things there, um, and I'm glad you chose those three. So one, I'm interested in the tool or tools that you use to determine um, where we are in the market cycle. But then the second thing is I'm also interested in the expression of the, the trade, if you like, quote unquote trade. How do you express the view based on what your tools or instruments are telling you? So um, I know you have this idea of the, the three wells um, from a yeah. personal finance and investing perspective mm -hmm. maybe you mentioned cape there so maybe you can explain how you go about determining what is or isn't a good buying level in the market yeah. and then yeah. how you implement that in your portfolio or in a client's portfolio or something like that yes okay so the cape ratio is the cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio mm -hmm. okay and what it simply says is if you came to me and you said, Steve, I want to invest some money, where am I in the market cycle? And it, the way I would figure that out is say, all right, look, the average business cycle is about seven to 10 years. And so if you said, well, where are we? Are we near a recession? Are we near a boom? Where are we? What I would do is say, well, I'll tell you what, Owen, let's look at the last 10 years and average out the earnings and then relate it back to the current price. Now, we know the long-term CAPE uh, average is 17, okay? So just keep that in your mind. So if I came to you, like now, and said to you, oh, and the CAPE's 34, right? You would say to me, well, gee, it's a long way above the average. Now, to get back to the average, it has to decline, okay? So if you buy stocks now you're probably looking at a big decline. So let me give you an analogy that I use. You're at a party, there's 100 people at the party. Now, for simplistic sake, let's, let's say they're all men. I'm the average height, I'm five foot nine and a half, okay? So I'm perfectly average. Now, if the Harlem Globetrotters started walking in, right, you, they would push the average height up a little bit. Mm. But we know that over the long term, we'll revert back to Steve Moriarty's five foot nine and a half. Now, to do that, you have to get some jockeys come in the room, okay? And so what you find is the higher the market climbs above the long-term average, the greater probability and what history shows is it falls back down below the average to make the average consistent over a long period of time. So what do I do? I say to myself, all right, the, let's use the, a couple of extremes. The US at the moment is about 32 or about 35 in the CAPE ratio. So in other words, my expectation is that the US will crash about 50 or 60%. Now, people can say, oh, you know, that's not gonna happen. I'm just telling you, according to history, 
that's the way things pan out. Now, the flip side. So in that case, I don't have any money invested in US stocks. Okay. Mm -hmm. The flip side is, if you look at places like Russia and Turkey in emerging markets, they're very cheap. Or in developed markets, uh, the UK is, is fairly cheap with a CAPE ratio of about 13. What I'm relying on is this thing called mean reversion. And so, again, what it's saying is when all the Harlem Globetrotters are pouring in the room, probably a good idea to realise that that's not going to continue on and that there's going to be some short people walk in the room. And if that's the case, then I'm really going to start selling a lot of stocks because I know the it's going to fall. The flip side is true in saying, well, when the CAPE ratio is really low, for example, in places like Russia or Turkey, it doesn't guarantee you'll make a lot of money, but the probability is higher because things are cheaper than they are in the US market. And so I adjust my asset allocation. So to give you an example, at the moment, I'm heavily in cash and I mean 90% heavily in cash. Right. Now, people will say, oh, geez, you know, that's awful, you know, because you're not getting any money for your cash. I, I, you won't get an argument out of me there. But I prefer sitting on a bunch of cash than I do going, gee, it'd be really bad if the stock market fell and I lost a lot of money. Mm. Um, the other thing is, too, what a lot of people do is say, you know, um, oh, what's your average return over the last five years? And again, it gets back to the principle of saying two things. One is I'm investing and have invested for 20 years and, you know, hopefully I've got another 20 or 30 left in me. That's what really matters and demonstrates some skill. If I look at any five-year period, you could say, well, that, you just got lucky. And that's what happens quite a lot. And so when I, so, you know, in, in my personal circumstances, I made a lot of money in 2009 because I bought when the market was cheap in Australia, you know, banks, um, you know, uh, BHP, mining companies and those sorts of things. I made a lot of money. Then again, in 2011, I made money when the US financial market crashed and the, the banks were really cheap. Mm. So then I made a lot of money there. Then I made a lot of money in 2014 when Russia got the sanctions put against it and it became really cheap. And the same thing in Brexit. Now, the commonality is not me being a genius. The commonality is simply saying all these markets have suffered a really traumatic event and all the stocks are now really cheap. That's when you want to say the biggest chance of me making money is now when everything's cheap. Okay. And that's how I do it. So it's sort of, I, I sort of say to people, it's like a heartbeat. Nothing's going on, then there's a lot of action. And then there's nothing going on and a lot of action. How about this then, Stephen? So that's a really neat way to package that idea of mean reversion, the CAPE ratio and using that. How about then when it comes to expressing the view? So you mentioned companies like BHP, the banks, and, and those types of things, not just here, but globally. Yes, are you, when you move from, so you let the, you drive with the, I guess, the, the portfolio allocation. Um, I know you do a fair bit of rebalancing, that type of thing. Yeah. How, how do you express a view? I've heard before that you've said you're quite willing to use like a short position 
Um, yes. Are you primarily focused on using things like ETFs or index funds to get that market exposure, that beta exposure, or are you um, pick, willing to pick individual stocks and, and shares? And maybe when you bring, the, when you talk about the individual positions, maybe you can introduce this idea called the Kelly criterion. So how do you yes. express the position? Um, right. Sure. Okay. First of all, when I first, when I first started investing, like everybody, I bought stocks um, because ETFs went around then. Um, now, I, over the years, I developed this thing called the risk hierarchy. And what the risk hierarchy about is saying, uh, let me take a step back. We seem to have this thing, and I, it, it's a little bit philosophical, but the, the Western, Western countries like individualism. And so we're always focusing on the, who's the best football player? Um, who's the best guitar player? Um, what's the best company? So what I, what I say is, well, yes, you can do that, but that's extremely difficult and it's extremely subjective. So you might say to me, oh, Steve, you know, Telstra's a great buy. And I might go, oh, no, oh, no, that's a terrible buy. Um, now, when it boils down to it, that's an opinion. Both of us have got our subjective opinion. So what I did was when I investigated the the historical returns, specifically with uh, focusing on mean reversion, what I found was, and, and the studies will show this both in stocks and in countries, is that the winners become the losers and the losers become the winners. Um, just for reference, you can have a look at Robert Schiller's book, Irrational Exuberance, um, chapter eight, talks about it with countries. What you find, Owen, is that when things are cheap, People don't like them, but they actually bounce back again. When things are really crazy, like Tesla, people think it's going to continue on and it crashes. Now, my idea was saying to people, and again, this, this was when I was talking about, you know, teaching people about stocks, saying, look, you can buy and sell indexes quite safely with a low degree of risk if you manage your asset allocation and rebalancing properly, and, and we teach people about those as the principles. And so that's the way that I look at risk, because what I say is, let me give you an example. In 2008, a friend of mine um, bought Woodside Petroleum. Now at that stage, it was 65 or $63, somewhere around there. Uh, today, I think it's at 19 or, you know, something like that. Now, that's, a, you know, that money's dead and gone. What I say to people is, look, that, that company can go bankrupt, right? And you can lose all your money. What about if I said to you, look, the Australian index won't go to zero, okay? Which is very reasonable, okay? It, and I say to people, look, if the stock market, you know, blows up 100%, we'll have more to worry about than just the stock market, Right. So what you simply do from there is have the logic to say, oh, okay, well, that means if it never goes broke, if it goes up a lot, I should take some money off. And then when it goes down a lot, I should put the money in because I know it's not going to go broke, but I know it can get cheaper. Mm. So if I can manage my money, I can say, well, when I make a lot of money, I can take it off and wait. Then it falls and I go, oh, okay, I'll put it back in again. And then I make more money. I go, oh you know, and, and repeat that process. That's easier to do 
than trying to explain to me with hindsight bias why Amazon's such a great company for the last 20 years. And what you find is people are now doing that by saying, you know, if you'd have invested in Amazon at the IPO, you know, you'd have a zillion dollar return. Okay, fair enough. From 2000 to 2002, Amazon lost 95%, right? Nobody would hold a 95% loser, okay? And so you've got to look at the full picture of individual stocks. Apple nearly went broke. And the reason why it was saved was because Bill Jobs bought Apple stock. And he bought Apple stock um, um, because he didn't want Microsoft to be the loan supplier because then they would have put regulations on him. There's all of these instances of luck with companies that make them survivors and successful. And again, I always use Amazon because when you look at when Amazon started, he was talking about selling books over the internet. He's never really made a lot of money in a lot of things other than the Amazon web services, which is a, a cloud system. So what I'm saying to people is, if you buy a, a, an individual stock, the, the story going forward for the next 10 or 20 years is very, very murky and really unpredictable. It looks predictable in hindsight. And so what I say is, if you've got a really unknown future, the best thing to do is say, well, look, I'll go for the low risk. And if you use your money properly, you can get build returns and wealth over the longer term with a reduced risk by buying, you know, the Australian ETF index or the, you know, the Russian one or the English one. And again, if I said to you, look, here's the cheaper end of town, go and put a bit of money down there rather than on the expensive end of town. And so if you think this leads me to the Kelly criterion, what Kelly said was, and I won't detail it too much, but simply Kelly said, look, if you've got some information that is better than the odds on offer, then you should bet more money. So let me give you an example. You and I are playing cards, okay? And you're the house and I'm the, I'm the gambler. Now, you deal me an ace and we're playing blackjack, right? Now, let's say there's, a, there's 600 cards in the, the stack that you can deal me, okay? Now, I've got an ace. Now, that's a good start, okay, for me to get blackjack. But there's 600 cards there. It, I could get, you know, and I need a picture card. The odds are not that good. But you've got an ace, and you might say to yourself, well, I'll put a little bit more than I normally would, okay? Because your odds of winning are a little bit better, and the, and the winnings are good. Now, Different scenario. You deal me an ace. There's four cards left in the pack. And three of them are picture cards. So in other words, I've got, a th I've got a three in four chance of getting a picture card, which will win me a lot of money. Kelly says, look, in that case, you want to bet a lot of money. Right? Why? Because your odds of winning are really, really big. And so you should bet more than you normally do. And so in the stock market, what we sort of use is the CAPE ratio to say to us, I'm investing over the next 10 years. Oh, okay. Russia on a CAPE ratio of six is offering about 10 to 12% returns. America on a CAPE ratio of potentially 35 
is offering you probably negative returns when you take account of inflation and fees and stuff. Where would you want to bet your money? You would want to bet your money in Russia. Okay. Why? Because you've got a big probability of winning. How do you know that? Now I look at the Cape ratio as my sort of little insider information. And so whilst people look at Russia and go, Oh, it's awful. And Putin's crazy. And you know, he's going to take over the, the whole, he'll nationalize everything. And it's a really risky investment. I don't see it that way. I look at it and say, well, yes, that's a, that's, that's a chance that, you know, might happen, but I think it's pretty unlikely and I'm prepared to put some money on it because the returns are good. And so now this is a one-off example, but I'm just saying that, you know, in my Russian investments, I've made about 300%. Why? Because they were cheap. And I said, well, listen, this is probably a good time to throw a bit of money at Russia. And so the way to beat the average returns is to be, is to look at the odds and say, when the Australian stock market's really low, you know the odds of getting a future return is really good, right? Because we know the Cape ratio and we know about bull and bear market cycles. So you should be brave and say, well, I should put some more money in when it crashes. Then on the flip side, when Kelly says, listen, there's no advantage and you know the odds are not very good, so you deal me a five, Right? I look at it and go, that's a terrible card, right? Why do I bet? I'll just throw it back in the pack and go, look, I'll take a little loss, but that's fine. Mm. Because when you, when you understand the investing sort of philosophy and, and the Kelly criterion, it's about simply saying, when you get a really good opportunity, bet a lot of money. When you've got a really bad opportunity, don't bet at all. And that's really all that Warren Buffett does. Warren Buffett waits for the market to crash a lot of the time and says, right, now I'll go shopping and I'll buy lots of good companies for cheap. That's how he compounds his money. Mm. So it's, it's more about when he buys rather than what he buys. It's a really interesting um, concept. And um, I've got to admit, it's quite different to my own, which is why I find it so fascinating to have this conversation. Um, coming from the bottom up perspective, these types of conversations I learned a lot from. Yes. Um, but I know that there's something that we want to talk about because I think it's relevant to a lot of investors, really all investors who come across this idea that um, how the, the economy that, that intertwines with the, the share market and returns overall. And yep. what, what we've touched on very briefly in this podcast so far is Using this top-down lens, how do we think about not only asset allocation, as, as you've spoken about, but how the economy drives returns? And one of the things I, I wanted to pick your brains on is this idea of modern monetary theory. And um, I, I'm not sure if that's the right term for it, but that's what we know it as, MMT. Um, <laughs> and I thought maybe, Stephen, you could introduce us to, I guess, how um, economics has played a role in markets over the past 20 or 30 years. Yep. But then also, I guess, give us this kind of overview of what is MMT? How has it changed? How has it not? And we'll have more questions. I'll have more questions towards the end. But what I'm yep. trying to get to is how it informs your view or how it in sh should inform a private investor's view. Yep. Modern monetary theory is, is 
look, whatever I say about it's going to be controversial because it's a controversial topic. Um, not beloved by many old economists. Um, mm -hmm. But basically, modern monetary theory says the government is a currency issuer. Now, that means that they can never run out of money. Okay? And so the, the corollary of that is, well, government debt's not that important. Right? So you imagine if I said to you, we're living in a place called Owen Land, right? And we have Owen dollars. That's the currency, right? And everybody buys and sells in Owen dollars, right? And you're, you're Owen. And someone says, geez, you know, Owen's racking up a better debt. How's he going to pay it back? Now, you create the money. So what you would do is say, oh, how much do I owe you? $100. Right, okay, hang on. There you go. There's $100. Where'd you get that from? Oh, I just created it out the back there. That's Owen dollars, right? And that's all modern monetary theory does. Now, the controversial bit, and that's not controversial because that's what governments do. Mm. Banks do it as well when they create loans and, you know, it gets a bit more technical. But essentially, the argument has always been, oh, well, if the governments can create their own money, they'll spend like crazy and then they'll create inflation. And that's bad. What mon monetary theory says is, look, the reality is that economics is about delivering rising living standards or, you know, feeding people their needs, right? Mm. Um, and their wants. And so what it says is the government should employ people and to maximise resources, okay, with real resources. Why should 10% of the people sit around being unemployed when the government can go out the back and say, listen, Owen, you're not working? Listen, mate, here's a thousand bucks. Go and spend a bit of money. So you go and spend it. And then you come back and you say, yeah, I've spent that money. And I say, listen, Owen, here's some more. Here's another thousand. You spend it. Suddenly the bloke says, listen, Owen, why don't you come and, you know, work for me? Because I need someone to, you know, deal with all this demand. That's what it basically boils down to. And so modern monetary theory and this is, this is, if you have a look at history, government deficits are really good for the economy because the government is saying, here's a big bunch of money, everybody. Go out and, you know, build bridges and do things that we want to do. So, again, if you look in 2009, the markets, stock markets around the world bounced back because Obama and in Australia, Rudd, spent lots of money. And when you spend lots of money, you create jobs. What, the, what a lot of people don't like is saying, oh, well, inflation will go out of control. But it hasn't really eventuated. Mm. And so the, part of the reason why that happens is because these days, if you said, look, we need a million iPhones, China would knock it up in a week, right? Because they've got so much spare capacity. So in the old days, when there was less manufacturing capacity, you had constraints that genuinely did create inflation. But now those, those aren't really there. And so the government, as you can see, in the last three years or four years has been saying, you know, we've got to get a budget surplus. We've got to get the surplus. You know, we've got to get the government back to surplus. Suddenly when COVID hit, they went, actually, we've got 200 billion we can spend. Now, the question is, well, hang on, where'd you get that from? Oh, we just created it. 
the problem that they have for politicians is saying people like you and me going, oh, well, if you can do that, you can do that anytime. So mm. where's my bit? So when you look at it, really, if you understand MMT, you get to a point where you start judging things by the morality or the ethics of it, which is, look, we've got, you know, we've got plenty of resources. What should we spend it on? Mm. Who deserves, you know, who deserves to get what? Um, with the distribution of those resources, not the money. Mm. So it's a, it's a, you know, it's been around for a while. It's controversial because in the last 40 odd years, Owen, we've been dominated by supply side economics. And what that means is government deficits were frowned upon. Mm. Okay. But it's not really true. And as we've seen in history, when governments spend, a lot of money, the stock market goes through the roof because it's more new money coming in. And so if you think about, you know, if you think about Owen land, if there's 10 of us on the Owen land, then if there's, if I'm not borrowing new money to do stuff, there's a set amount of money just circulating. And so it's a zero sum game because if I buy off you, I haven't got any money to buy off someone else. So there's no growth. What you need is money coming in. And there's two ways to do that. The government, Owen, can say, listen, here's a bunch of more dollars, you know, go and do some more stuff. Or what we've done for the last 30 years has set private people to go and borrow. And so hence the reason why Australia has got a very large private sector deficit because the private sector deficit has made up for the government not spending money. Mm. So what that does is when you look at it, it's, it's always about, in my mind, looking at what the, the, the debt capacity is, who's borrowing and what the government is doing, because you have to have new money or new energy coming into that system for it to expand. Otherwise, if there's 10 Owen dollars circulating in the economy, if there's no more Owen dollars coming in, those $10 is just going to shift between us, but no one's getting any wealthier. Mm. Okay, so you need, you need the new money to come in. If I say, well, look, Owen, I really want to build a bridge, you say, okay, well, here's some new dollars, go and build a bridge. Then I go and hire people and say, look, John, I need you to you know, come and help me on the bridge here's some wages, and you get the expansion. So contrary to a lot of people's arguments, government deficits are actually good for investors. Um, and there's one simple example, which is when Bill Clinton came in, he basically turned the government from deficit into a surplus and automatically created a recession in the US economy. And that's, that's how it sort of operates. Bill Clinton created the recession and Australia has recently struggled because the government is not spending enough money. And so you've got this problem where you've got low wages and if people haven't got enough money, what do they do? Well, they, they either adjust their budget accordingly or they, they, what we've done in Australia in the last 20 odd years is go and borrow money to speculate on property and stocks and, you know, all kinds of stuff. So that leads us to a position where we've got, you know, 100 and, 
80 odd, 190% to GDP in debt, whichever way you want to look at it, Australians are carrying a very large amount of debt. And what that does is makes you vulnerable to a, you know, a black swan or a, or a COVID, mm. you know, where you sort of go, oh, geez, I didn't see that COVID thingy. And that's now it's like, oh, well, um, now I'm out of a job or now I haven't got cash flow for six months. If you haven't got debt, it's, you know, it's, it's sort of like, well, that's not very good, but at least you haven't got the pressure on your, on your investments to sell them down. And so, you know, it's a dangerous position to be in, I think. How about then from, I guess when I, when I think about this, I think about monetary policy and interest rates um, coming down a long way over the past 20 to 30 years. Yes. And then I see, you know, I see people saying, well, effectively modern monetary theory is what we've been doing um, yes. in the background. And then people saying, like you've, you've said, it's effectively the government can still service the debt because it, if it issues debt in its own currency and it's in control of that, um, it can effectively do what it wants. Yes. What would be the case going forward then as we probably shift towards more fiscal policy where the government sets a budget, um, aims to stimulate in certain ways? What would be, in your mind... I guess the the criticism of MMT and adopting more of that approach versus I guess this if I could say it the old way of economics, which is more driven by an independent body, the central bank, which controls monetary policy. Yeah, well, you know, we don't elect the central bank; we elect politicians. Mm. And so, what I mean what I mean by that is, you know, you can't go in and talk to Philip Lowe and argue about it and you know, demand he do something because he's independent. But if you go and complain to a politician, they'll do something about it. Um, and in a former life, I was a, a senior policy advisor for a politician, <laughs> a minister. So, you know, let me tell you, when people come in and complain, you, you listen up because there's a vote involved. Um, but that point aside, look, it, you know, history works with a combination of fiscal policy policy and monetary policy and they counterbalance each other and you can use them sensibly what you find and what has happened over the last 30 years is that fiscal policy is 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 nearly dead um and all you hear about you know every day is oh the fed doing this or you know phil Lowe needs to do this and that well you know you can make interest rates as low as possible look at what we've got them to have we got a blending boom? No, we haven't got a lending boom. Why? Because everybody's got a bloody bucket load of debt. Mm. So you could come to me and say, Steve, zero interest rates and I want you to borrow. And I say, well, okay, what for? Because, you know, um, people want stuff. Well, no, they don't. We're in a recession. Why would I build for, you know, when we come out of a, a recession? It could be a long way away. So my mind is it, it always comes back to the demand side of the equation. Okay, and when you look at MMT's discussion about taxes, that helps regulate the demand side. And again, what you said before is, you know, we're already doing it. Yes, we are. Because what we did was we said, I'll tell you what we'll do. We want people to stop smoking. Okay, how do we do that? I'll tell you what we do. We make cigarette packets $35 a packet. That reduces the, the demand for them. So you tax it almost the sector or industry level. Yes. What you do is, and it's, it's, it's always the, the, 
people understand that taxes are not raising money for the government to spend, mm. right? Because as I said to you before, they don't need your tax dollars, right? Because they can just say, well, oh, no, I'll just give you more money. Oh, well, don't you need me to pay you to give it back to me? No, mate, we've got the machine out the back here. So taxes take on a different uh, role. And what they do is taxes help regulate demand um, and also a, a steer where we want investment to go. For example, tax breaks. Um, you know, again, as I said, you might say, as they do in other countries, in the Scandinavian countries, you know, alcohol is really expensive. Why? Because they don't want people damaging their health with alcohol. Taxes are the vehicle to do that. Mm. And so, again, you can see that monetary policy and fiscal policy can work together. What we've had over the last 30 to 40 years is a, a, a very heavy reliance on monetary policy. And what it's done is it's led us to a position where, like uh, Japan was in the, the 90s, the, the private debt levels were extremely high. And so you can imagine, Owen, if Philip Lowe came out and said, you know what, we're going to raise rates. We're going to you know, work it back up to 2 3 4%. That would crush the economy mm. because everybody's got, not everybody, but a lot of people have got a lot of property debt that they need to service. Now, the more you say to people you've got to repay, the less money there is for them to go and spend their money discretionary. That for, therefore, that drops the growth rate down. You see, so we're caught in this vicious cycle where we need the government to come in and spend a lot of money but what we have to do at the same time is, in my opinion, is we have to, we have to put some um, governors on some of the investment lending. Mm. Because what you find is if, if things start going well again, people have got this, this desire to speculate. And so you, you'll continue to lend too much money and get the same problems over and over again. And indeed, that's what's been happening since about the after the war, we've had these cycles of everybody borrowing, then going, oh, God, we can't raise interest rates. Why? Because that'll crash the economy. Oh, all right, well, let's just leave them artificially low mm. so nobody goes broke. Well, yeah, but now, you know, nobody can grow again. Oh, I know, but we can't, you know, have all these bankruptcies. And so this is what happened in the GFC, and it's where Australia finds itself a little bit now where we're saying there's a lot of people with a lot of debt and if you raise interest rates or you get higher unemployment or those sorts of things, it creates, it's going to create a problem. Mm. And that will be reflected in, you know, property markets, in stock markets, in a lot of markets. Mm. I, heard it, I heard it put to me, Stephen, that effectively now that everyone knows that the government can print money and it can pay its debt, there's no going back from that. And I think... Uh, obviously, I'm not um, probably the one to get to give you um, economics lectures or anything like that. But yeah, yeah. the way I heard it put to me was effectively, you know, that the, the critical part here is the budgeting. So how does Treasury function insofar as setting limits on what, you know, is reasonable for spending in certain sectors? And how do you then um, tax that to control that, um, that upper limit? And I feel yeah. like if we, to your point about independent governors, 
of this, I feel like that's essential because if you come in with a prime minister or someone with a three, four year term, whatever it might be, um, you know, you're going to have a mismatch between um, political you know, votes and the long-term sustainability of things. Yeah, true. You've, and I can tell you, I'm, you've always had that. Yeah. There are, you know, you've always had that. Um, you know, we've got, we've got parliament that regulates, we've got Senate that, you know, oversees the spending and those sorts of things. So there are, there are limits within what governments can do. The other thing too, which I think is an important point is what, when you think about, and this probably gets back to our conversation at the start, which is what people really desire is a, is a job, is a nice income and some, some sense of certainty, you know, they're, they're plotting a path. Mm. Um, so when you look at MMT, and, and not everybody agrees, but what I'm saying is if you give people a path of certainty, they tend to relax a bit more and, and live life a little bit more. Um, I, I, I can tell you at 57, having been through the, the switch, you know, life is, you know, as a young person, it's a lot more exciting, but it's a lot more uncertain. Um, you know, the, when I was 17, I wasn't thinking, gee, what five careers am I going to have um, over my lifetime? Um, you know, most of the time I walked into a job um, because there was active government, you know, and all that sort of thing. But so what I'm saying is essentially, if you, if, if people have more security, they, they, they calm down, if I can put it that way, you know, they, they don't go crazy. And it, it gets back to what I said before. We speculate a lot in markets rather than invest because we, we've got a, 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 an urgency about the great uncertainty, whether it's on a personal level or a, or a, you know, a broader level. Um, and so my argument would be there are certainly mechanisms there to control the deficit. Um, the other thing is too, and, and we talk about this in our three wells, which is, look, you know, Warren Buffett, uh, Jeff Bezos, you know, Bill Gates, all of those people, they've got more money than they ever need. Now, do you find they go out and spend absolutely zillions on everything they want? Well, they don't. Why? Because they've got enough things in life. And so what they then do is say, well, look, I want to do something interesting. So Bill Gates rushes off and solves malaria and, you know, Bill Gates does his philanthropy and Jeff Bezos does his thing. So what I'm saying is a lot of us, the, the, the old argument in economics was we had unlimited wants. And I don't find that to be true. I think you get to a point in life where you say, well, I've got enough money. Now I want to have, you know, interesting times. That doesn't mean I'm going to go out every day and buy new golf clubs and Hugo Boss pants and, you know, blah, blah, blah. You, you tend to settle down to a life if you've got children that you've got to go to school, you know, those sorts of things. So it's not really this thing where you, you know, you, you're just spending wildly. It, it doesn't really happen. Um, so I don't think that's really a threat. And I, the, the, again, what a lot of people do is when they discuss MMT, they don't discuss it in its own framework. What they do is they apply neoclassical economics to an MMT. And so what I say is, it's like saying, look, um, I want to put this nail in the wall and you hand me a screwdriver. And it's like, 
well, that's not going to do the job. It's a tool, but it's the wrong one. And so it's the same where, you know, the neoclassical people will argue stuff that is in the neoclassical framework, but not in the modern monetary theory framework. And so a lot of people find it difficult to, to jump ship, so to speak. Mm. And I think that's obviously that happens with change. We've got friction, as you say, with particularly some of the older economists who um, have been, I guess, indoctrinated into that neoclassical um, view of the world and economics. Yes. Um, so I'm cognizant we're coming to the back of this conversation, Stephen. So I wanted to ask you just if this kind of new ways of economic theory, and I, I you know, I, I probably say that tongue in cheek, new way of economic theory, because it's been here for yes. a while, but has that changed your, your view of the stock market of businesses of equities being a driver of wealth creation going forward? Um, yeah, it has. The reason why, uh, Owen, is because once you understand where the money goes, um, you really get to understand where you should be. Again, we talk about it in our program. It's a, you know, we do a session on what's called capital cycle theory. Um, and again, it's a little bit at the moment like the uh, buy now, pay later sector. You know, there's lots of action, there's lots of investment, and so the stock prices are booming, you know, but that will eventually plateau out because the market won't grow forever. Um, MMT basically it taught me, I suppose, that when governments spend money, that's a good thing. Now, will they waste it? Absolutely. But, you know, who, you know people are, are often critical going, oh, you know, the government's wasting so much money. You take a walk around a person's house, I can guarantee you there's plenty of wasted money there. You know, <laughs> we all do it on a personal level. Governments do it as well, whether it's, you know, political pork barrelling, um, just the wrong project, you know, those things sort of happen. But generally, I remain optimistic that we'll get it right. And again, because the, the difference that, that we have is we have the ability to say, well, let's create more of that money and go and fix things up. Because as you know, nobody likes to spend, you know, a miserable life. And if you've got, a, if you've got 26 Australians who are miserable, what you can do is do something about it. And that way is saying, well, let's go and grab some more money and, you know, spend some more. And as I said, that's exactly what Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg have done correctly when COVID hit. They said, listen, slip out the back and, you know, put people, put money in people's bank account and we'll keep things going along. Now, that, that's doable on an individual basis. You know, you think unemployed people have been getting terrible money. Now suddenly they got more money than they can poke a stick at. The question will be, well, why should we take that money off them? Mm. You know, why? Because the reality is that's reducing demand. You know, because if you said, Steve, here's $1,000 a week, and I go, whoopee, this is great, and I'm going out and I'm spending it, I'm contributing to the economy. If you say to me, as they're going to at the end of September, oh, look, Steve, it's not a thousand, it's now 800. I go, oh, okay, well, that's 200 less for the economy. Hmm. So in that sense, what I've sort of, my, my argument is, the reason why recessions end 
these days is because government steps in and spends a lot of money and fixes problems. That's a really good time for investors. If you consider where the stock market is not too expensive. Okay. Mm. So my caveat is at the moment, Australia looks very expensive. Therefore it's not the time, but if the market falls, then that will be a good time to start investing. And again, because, you know, as you know, if you're uncomfortable in a country sense, politicians are there to change that. And, and that's what we demand of them. Otherwise, we vote them out and vote the other mob in. Mm. Well, Stephen, we've covered a lot of ground and I feel like we've ended on a somewhat optim- optimistic note, which I'm very happy with. Um, if people want to learn more about you, I know you're quite active on Twitter, so I'll share... I'll share your Twitter handle and um, hopefully we get some uh, thoughtful comments coming through. But is there anywhere else people can go to learn more about you? I know you've got the podcast and books. Maybe you could just give a shout out to that. Yeah, yeah. We've got um, Pete and I um, have nextlevelwealth.com.au and you can contact me there. You can write to me just at steve at uh, go nextlevelwealth.com.au. And yes, I'm a a fairly uh, active Twitter user. so, um, yeah, people are, are happy to uh, contact me there. Or um, I think our details are also in the book as well. So, you know, mm. these days with Google, you can, you know, even just Google Stephen Moriarty and I'll, I'll pop up there somewhere along the line. Yeah. And I'll put all the links in the show notes too for people who yeah, want to follow along and, and engage with you. I think it, it would be a great thing for them. Steve, as always, um, I'd just like to say, um, oh, I've just got one last question which I want to ask you and it can be a quick one. It can be a long one, yep. whatever you like. It is, if you could go back and tell your younger self one thing about money, finance, or investing, what would it be? Understand the value of compounding and learn the Kelly criterion, which is called capital growth theory. Hmm. And it's the opposite to the efficient market theory. And, it, uh, and the reason why I say that is because in order to understand compounding properly, you need to have understanding of capital growth theory. Wonderful. And, and, and start young and basically just build wealth mm-hmm. rather than, you know, try and be Warren Buffett by the time you're 30 because, you know, that doesn't work out a lot. It's, you usually end up poorer than you do richer. But it, if you build wealth, with the principles and with a plan, you'll, you'll be just fine. Fantastic advice, Stephen. Thanks for joining me on the show. No problem. Thanks, Alan. <laughs>